understanding the intersections of myself, I find that as I'm learning about who I am and using my poetry and my art to explore that, I think using an online forum for me personally has felt like a safe space. Being friends with queer people, being friends with um, anyone who experiences marginalisation or has empathy for people who experience marginalisation, that gives me strength. Welcome. The Digital Writers' Festival 2018 is an online festival exploring the unique relationship between technology and storytelling. Accessible anywhere, anytime, by anyone with an internet connection. Join us right here in hyperspace between the 30th of October and the 3rd of November and find our full program at digitalwritersfestival.com. Come in, get comfortable and get curious as we hear from storytellers and artists from across the world wide web. Hi, I'm Bastian. I live and work on the land of the Awabakal people, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Today, I'm going to be reading a piece about Dusty Springfield, which I read recently at the National Young Writers Festival here in Newcastle. I had never worn a wig before, and certainly not a beehive. On my head, it was a blonde waterfall. An artist friend I'd commissioned had constructed it out of two wigs, purchased on a trip we'd made to Paddy's Markets. I'd chosen the colour. Honey gold looked nice with my skin tone. I hadn't been blonde since childhood. I'd bought the dress at Red Cross, the first I'd bought in years. It was white, short and lacy. It made me think of of flower children. Dusty always wore long dresses, but this was my Dusty Springfield tribute show, I reasoned. I could be my own version of Dusty. I teamed the outfit with impossibly high beige-coloured stilettos. I planned to enter the stage and walk to the microphone without my glasses. I hoped I wouldn't walk off the edge. Since the idea for doing a Dusty show had come to me, I'd been working for weeks to get it off the ground a one-night-only extravaganza at the Red Rattler. My Newtown queer performer friends could do Dusty-themed performances. My friend who was good with hair could do a beehive booth, teasing the audience's hair into big bouffants so they could get in theme. I'd ask a handy friend to help me reconstruct the set from Dusty's iconic 60s film clip for I Just Don't Know What To Do With Myself. I would perform too. I'd sing The Look Of Love. I had been rehearsing in my bedroom. I wanted my vocal performance to be so perfect it had looked like I lip-synced. I studied the timbre of Dusty's voice and tried to reproduce the sound. In the verses, it was soft and warm, like air blown through a reeded instrument. Then in the chorus, it ached and cried. I watched YouTube clips of Dusty's live performances and copied her movements. Her slim hands cupping her face, fingers lightly touching one cheek, then reaching out to grasp love, then fluttering down, defeated. I'd read in Dusty, Queen of the Postmods, that Springfield's performance style might have been inspired by Sarah Bernhardt in Phaedra, consumed with forbidden love, 
confessing desires to taboo for her time. While reading in search of lost time to build my stamina for long passages, I discovered that Proust loved Sarah Bernhardt too. His character, La Burma, was based on her. Knowing that Proust loved melodrama as much as me was a comfort. I could only find this sort of camp overacting in drag shows, but the drag shows I saw were always silly, funny, light-hearted. I wanted to perform a longing so fierce it was tragic. A few nights before the show, I ran a bath. Lying in the hot water, I looked at my body. There were no bubbles here, nothing to hide behind. Since I'd started exercising more, my body had shed fat and built muscle, but the general shape was still the same. My doctors had congratulated me on losing weight and asked if this had helped my polycystic ovarian syndrome. Were my periods more regular now? I didn't know. I had disowned them. My doctor was not the only one who'd noticed a change in my shape. People I barely knew were telling me how good I looked now. I'd never received so many compliments about my body. It made me want to get smaller. No matter how small I became, though, my curves would not disappear. In the day, I could dress it up, forget about it. At night, my body waited for me. For the show, I'd have to remove my leg hair. It was drag, I reasoned. I had to be true to form. The night before the performance, I locked myself in the bathroom with a box of wax strips. I looked down at my furry legs. They hadn't been denuded for years. Each rip cut a path through the hair, exposing more of my bare skin. First shins appeared, then knees, calves, thighs. The stinging pain was familiar. By the end, I barely recognised my limbs. They seemed incongruous, like someone had attached arms to my hip joints. I ran a hand over my legs. Smooth, like blank paper, like a river stone. I went to the basin and sang a line from The Look of Love, performing my gestures in the mirror. You can close your eyes now because I'm going to sing. The look of love is in your eyes, a look your smile can't disguise. Okay, you can open your eyes. Next, I picked up my razor and shaving cream. I lathered my face. Beard, neck, moustache. It would all have to go. I slid the razor across my skin. Long, dark hairs that had grown so close had now been severed. They were trapped between the blades, floating in the water, clinging to the edges. I pulled the plug. There, at the bottom of the sink, was a small animal. It had rolled itself into a dark, wet ball. I picked it up. It only weighed a fraction of a gram, yet I paid such a heavy price for it. I turned the tap on hard, broke and washed it away. Then I met my eyes in the mirror. Someone else was looking back. On the night of the show, my Dusty sang her lines with sweetness and sorrow. 
My Dusty moved her hands with grace. My Dusty was a tender reed bending in the wind. My Dusty had them eating from her palm. My Dusty wore false eyelashes. My Dusty wore the only bra and panties I hadn't thrown away. My Dusty had a full face of makeup, pancaked on by a friend in the green room. I didn't know how to apply it. When my Dusty walked out, she did not stumble. My Dusty's legs trembled, but she stood strong. She poured herself into the song. Afterwards, my Dusty watched from the wings and thought, I created this. At intermission, an old friend asked what dress size I was now. My Dusty was so slim. My Dusty was so perfect, not a hair was out of place. My Dusty was so complete, my auntie had only recognised me by my necklace. I worried that my Dusty had them fooled. I was not going back to the things I'd learned so well in my youth. My Dusty was an act. But when my Dusty posed for a photograph with Mum, and we smiled in our matching beehives, it felt real. I forgot to mention that, so this is a piece from the memoir that I've been writing for the past few years, which Mm -hmm. is called Beard the Bully, and I'm almost at the end of writing that. And is it a... Um, is it a collection of stories? It, you said it's a memoir. What? Maybe let's get started on, on something like form. Uh, I guess it's a story in three parts about three significant time periods in my life. And it's all to do with basically just uh, negotiating the experience of being in a body that is marginally sex variant. So I'm female assigned at birth and I have facial hair and the fact that I have facial hair as a female assigned person has sent me on a very wonderful gender journey (laughs) with many twists and turns. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your your practice? So you you write, you perform, make scenes. Um, Yeah, tell tell me what you practice and how you practice it. So I probably started putting my work out there into the world in the form of zines and I guess like the the first thing that I put into the world that had a big impact I think was my zine called Ladybeard and that was just a brief story that I wrote about the time when I had decided to start growing out my facial hair for the first time um, and I wrote and started distributing this scene pretty much around the time that I was first doing that. So it was very, it was a very immediate statement on a, I guess, bodily and like gender practice that I was um, starting in my life. Um, And I continue to write personal zines in my twenties. And then in my mid twenties, a friend I guess, dared me to do NaNoWriMo with them. NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month, National Novel Writing Month. Uh, and so you have to write 50,000 words in in one month, um, which was, to me, the most terrifying thing in the world. Uh, but I decided to do it, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And then a friend of mine said, well, why don't you write a memoir? Because that's 
pretty much what your zines are. They're stories about without sort of thinking too much about it. And I actually finished in three weeks about my life and gender identity and sexuality and facial hair. Then I pretty much never went back and looked at it ever again, but I did start crafting stories based on the things that I wrote about in NaNoWriMo. And that was the beginning of Beard the Bully. When I embarked on this, I really felt like, oh, you know, it'll be easy. I'll just like bash out some stories about my life and it'll be fine, you know. And I did not expect that the process itself would would totally change me and that I would also be changing while I was writing in terms of my gender identity and my connection to other people. Have you had to document the, I guess, the the trials and tribulations of writing both a work as well as actually having to experience it? Yeah, I guess I sort of documented the process of writing the work in the zines that I continued to produce. Mm-hmm. The zine series that I've been working on for the past few years is called How to Be Alone. Uh, so I guess I, w- I continue to write on that theme in relation to writing my memoir and I guess trying to carve out space for myself to be alone to do this work and something that came up for me in the process of writing was basically the the cost of doing this kind of work the emotional cost of doing work into things that are very personal and how you then negotiate, you know, you've spent all this time trying to craft this very nuanced um, work about gender and then when you put it out there into the world and people respond to it, um, you know, their response might be kind of like, oh, so you are a transgender, really? I didn't know. I would never have guessed. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about whether putting the work out there, um, like this, this reading that you gave as part, part, of this, um, part of this larger work, has anything else been shared, like, online, digitally? I think, like, most of the – I don't really have that much stuff published online, actually. I have a – poem that I wrote about writing (laughs) and just about some general sort of everyday experiences um, to do with uh, when you're not clearly male or female or when people are, you know, confronted by something about your gender presentation. The reason I asked that, I guess, was to see if there was, I guess, the emotional cost of sharing yourself online, but often mm. it's almost like you, you do you do give of yourself to other people in that sense, but the way people can also relate to you and see you differently is often in some instances a really positive experience. Like it does build that, uh, that solidarity, makes you feel less alone. I haven't shared too much of my memoir online but I did do an interview with the local paper earlier in the year and you know at the time I was very selective about um, how much time I spent online and on social media so I 
stopped reading the news. I deleted Instagram and I logged out of Facebook for maybe it was even six months. And I had moved to Newcastle where I knew less people than I did when I lived in Sydney. And all of this was really great for spending more time alone um, and being able to go deep with the work. But I didn't really notice the toll that it was taking on me in terms of how isolated I was becoming. And, um, you know, I was working in a Renew Newcastle studio. So I had my own little private studio, kind of dusty little cupboard situation. (laughs) And I would go there every day and I would do my work about, you know, the fact that uh, female facial hair has pretty much been eradicated from all, you know, most bodies, most online representation from history, you know, and I was making this argument about why it has been eradicated and why there should be more space for people to be able to make choices about body hair Um, and how much this had to do with the issue of personhood, which um, is something that I had learned from reading Judith Butler's essay on um, David Reimer, Doing Justice to Someone. I guess like all of these personal experiences and this research and my process of writing and the isolation that I had sort of organized for myself all kind of coalesced and suddenly I felt really alone and I hadn't been expecting that like to go so deeply into the work and into my own experiences and just suddenly find myself to find myself just feeling a lot of like despair like coming up against this question for the first time of oh like can I actually live like this in the future like do I have a future like this and what is it going to be like when I present this really personal work to the world and then have to field questions or you know (laughs) discuss my work so I think I had sort of like convinced myself that I was all alone which is totally false you know so I guess in a way like the internet is good for reminding yourself that hello there are other people out there and even if they're not in close proximity to you like they still exist their their work exists their presence exists and um you can reach out to people of course um both physically and and online how did you counter that um the aloneness I think that I really enjoyed the weekend when This Is Not Art was on and um I was able to share my work with people who are my peers and to see that the time I'd taken to to put into this work meant something to them or, you know, that the work meant something to them and to be able to hear their stories and connect with them and have conversations with them and walk down to the beach and, you know, show them how to spot whales that were migrating down the coast. Um, Physically being with people over that weekend was like incredibly encouraging and it kind of made me remember that um you know like I really love this line from a Björk song about how you know she sings like it doesn't have to be a strive 
Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the rest now. <laughs> she says, like, it doesn't have to be a strife. It doesn't have to be a struggle uphill. Being friends with queer people, being friends with um, anyone who experiences marginalization or has empathy for people who experience marginalization, um, that gives me strength. Okay. I'm going to draw back to the Dusty piece um, that you performed recently at National Young Writers Festival. Um, uh, it was it was a really electrifying performance, I thought, um, and you could kind of feel like uh, you could feel everyone's um, like goosebumps happen all at once towards the end of it. It was wonderful. The one thing I really, really wanted to ask you about was – there's a line in it that you say um, as as justification for um, you know having hairless legs. You say, "I had to be true to form." I reasoned. So, my question was: uh, when you do tell your stories, do you feel as though you are having to work within a confined space, or the more you feel at home with your work? the more you can sort of push boundaries or form really ceases to, to matter at all? Hmm. Um, I guess something that my my supervisor, Beth Yap, really liked to tell me when I was studying with her was that um, I need to stop thinking so much. Some of the times when I've done my best writing um, has been, have, it's been when I don't put pressure on myself to create something in a particular way. Um, and especially like earlier when I was learning or like teaching myself how to write my story, even in reading this particular piece, there's always, you know, there are always these like fears that come up around are people in my own community going to pick this apart? Are they going to judge me? Are they going to say this thing that you said about gender, it's wrong, you know, or it's not how I see it and because you're taking up space to tell this story, you're like <laughs> saying something that not everyone experiences, so it's wrong. It's interesting like to question like where does that come from, that that like fear around like just speaking a truth because everybody has their own experiences of these things but there's still that concern about being judged not only by you know the mainstream who maybe like some more like prejudices around like binary gender or sexuality or whatever but yeah there's also that fear coming from within the community that somehow you will have misrepresented them. Charlotte Raymond is a Melbourne poet who uses poetry to explore identity. Hi, I'm Charlotte. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm speaking from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and recognise elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. This is stolen land in which we are telling our stories. I'll now read a um, poem from my chapbook, The Melanin Monologues of Charlotte's Web, called You'll Find Me Living in Narnia. For something painted with so much colour, I've never seen something so white. 
something in parading all those shades they forgot that brown and black were a part of the rainbow too. He asked me, well my colours don't shine as brightly as hers. Hers arched over valleys, cascaded across cities, mine speckled in fragments under UV lights in dimly lit bars. I told him that no two people could stand in the exact same spot and see the exact same spectrum of colour at any given time. You can never see all the colours and mine just don't shine so brightly. Between these yellows and caramels, I guess you'll only see pastel. But I wear a blue that fades to black. I wear a red that bleeds of slaughter, a sadness left behind in the wreckage of conquerors and colonizers, a vintage shade of blue. Passed down from my mother and her mother and her mother. A blue of languages lost and left unspoken, the red of a heart that yearns for a home that has rendered me homeless. She parades her colours. We store owls away like secrets swept under rugs, skeletons in closets so it's no secret that you'd find me living in Narnia. When I wore that technicolor coat, they saw that as biblical, not quite political, the lines of bi bisexuality broken in their reality. They saw this as an ode to Joseph. When I'd worn my lover's combat boots and her flannel shirt, my mother's face filled with a smile, her heart filled with pride, but not the pride I'd defined with this upside down rainbow. She saw my colors differently. I reminded her of rice fields, I reminded her of farming yields, I reminded her of home. When he wore glitter in his brow, she saw that his sweat trickling down the face, a black cascade for the constellation she had dreamed upon before she came here. My mother wears Polaroid sunglasses, she cannot see my queer. Call it a moonbow. Call it specks of pastels under UV lights laced with my mother's yellow and my father's caramel. Call it owl shades of blue arched into a frown. Call it what comes after rain. Call it what doesn't come out at midday. Call it what's arched behind fur coats and A-line skirts. Call it colours in closets. Originally in this segment, Sharika Halaluddin was going to ask Charlotte questions. However, due to some technical difficulties, um, I'm going to be reading Sharika's questions to Charlotte. So, first of all, your poetry often explores a sense of multiple identities and your complex relationship with them. Your bisexuality, Sri Lankan Filipino roots, being a woman of colour, your migrant family. I'm thinking about your poems, Mother Tongue and Pebble Haze. How have online spaces allowed you to unearth, interweave, find words, empower or even challenge these intersections of yourself? Um, I think with understanding the intersections of myself, I find that as I'm learning about who I am and using my poetry and my art to explore that, I think using an online forum for me personally has felt like a safe space um, to showcase that. It gives me a chance to kind of connect with a wider range of people, people who may 
have similar experiences or may not um, have the accessibility to get to an event where I might speak. And I think it's just a really nice way for me to introduce myself to who I am through sharing with other people. When you perform SLAM, it seems like a really present and emotionally charged space, like a reciprocity between your energy and the audience. It's really intimate and political. What are ways in which you carve out space in online communities and find solace to be vulnerable and share your poetry elsewhere? I think um, one of the ways in which sharing it online can be different um, in a good way is how that kind of message is delivered. So when I'm writing it, um, a lot of it can come down to formatting or thinking about how can what I write communicate the sentiment of what I would ordinarily perform. So I think I'm more conscious of my delivery and my choice of words when I'm working in an online space. And it also means I can feel safer to explore some more vulnerable content. It means that often as a slam poet, you're working to time limits. And in an online space, I don't feel as though they're as rigid and I can be a bit more expressive in what I have to present. And is there like a difference when you're doing slam poetry and or like publishing online? Um, this is me, Bastion, responding to what you've just said. <laughs> um, is there a difference for you in terms of it being recorded and like able to be accessed afterwards? Um, so in terms of online, it being um, yeah, like afterwards. slam, it's live and people aren't necessarily recording it, whereas online it can be read over and over again I think sometimes with knowing say online spaces can sometimes be can also go the other way is if I know there's going to be a sense of permanency um, I might hesitate to talk about certain things I might not be as vulnerable um, because there's a sense of permanency of what I have to say Um, but also it can be liberating um, to kind of leave a footprint of a part of my story that I may you know, otherwise keep quiet or someone else may not otherwise get to hear. So I think it can go both ways in that respect. Back to Sharika's questions. Can you speak to ways you use language and poetry to communicate the richness of your experiences, yours and your family stories? For me, the use of language and poetry has definitely allowed me to go through my own process of decolonizing my identity. So I spent a long time not being very in touch with um, my identity, um, growing up with a lot of my own privileges and not having to dissect dissect them until, say, I got to university and I realized a greater sense of difference. And what I've allowed myself to do is use my art form to explore who I am, explore the complexities, the tensions, the oppressions, the privileges of that. Because I like to write about the things I know best, it often means I will tell my family story. Um, And sometimes it'll be what I do know of that and also the tensions of feeling disconnected from a lot of that and not knowing what I feel are really important and vibrant stories like In a piece of mine called Mother Tongue, I talk about how my mum actually speaks five languages, but I only grew up speaking one and talking about that process of why that may be the case. 
and how that exists within a Western um, context. And this is me responding to what you've just said. Um, Do you talk with your family about sharing their stories? Like, is there dialogue between you about your writing practice? I think that's a part of my journey that I haven't quite come to yet. They know that I will do perform and that I'll write things. And there are certain pieces that um, they are aware of, but I think there also is a level of vulnerability for me in showing it to someone who I am a part of the same family of. Ironically, it's me sharing with a quite large space can feel safer, um, but sharing in more intimate settings can sometimes be a bit daunting for me. Um, but I certainly don't see it as something that won't happen. But it's, again, that process of using my art form to understand my own story is what's currently happening for me at the moment. Sharika writes that um, she feels that queer spaces can often erase or pit you against racialized and cultural identities. And sometimes there's this really racist notion that diasporic communities don't accept queerness. How do you bridge that distance between you and your family's histories, homelands? Where do you feel abundant and your fullest self and hold all of the senses of who you are? I would first bring up is when I was first entering queer spaces in a formal setting um, and being quite a critically reflective person because of the work I do as a social worker, um, it was often the other way where I felt as a woman of colour Um, I kind of felt out of place in queer spaces Um, and it often felt quite whitewashed and there wasn't a recognition of um, the experiences of people of colour as much as I would have liked to. Um, But I think as I delved a little bit deeper, I felt there definitely is that sense of connection with um, queer people of colour and sometimes even if someone's not from the same cultural background as me, I'll often find Um, that people who've come from a non-Western background will share similar stories. And in my own personal experience, as someone who hasn't come out to everyone um, in my family, I can certainly recognise that there can be this notion that sometimes um, certain cultures are perceived to not accept queerness. But I think it's really important to understand why that may be the case. So say, for example, I saw this really interesting um, post when um, the laws about same-sex attraction changed in India and essentially the acknowledgement of queer identity was something that had existed in India for quite a long time and it was when British colonisation took place that those things were perceived as being dirty, as being wrong. So the intergenerational trauma that carried from that colonization has meant that these perceptions have existed in these colonized spaces and by um, countries of quite rich cultural identity then coming to be like oh they've become westernized they now are more accepting of queerness I think if anything (laughs) it's a process of decolonizing that um, rejection of queerness that had existed in some of those spaces And I thought that was a really interesting thing to recognise. So, for example, for me, um, my mother is Filipino and she's always grown up with having trans people within the community. It's been normal 
um, for her to, you know, for her to see a trans hairdresser when she was living in the um, Philippines and she'll attend fundraisers for people to have the surgery so they can um, um, biologically identify with the gender they um, feel most at heart with. And then I also think about the way in which the Philippines is, again, quite a Catholic country and that process of how that's been a colonisation thing from Spanish influence. And I think really dissecting that and really trying to understand where these perceptions of accepting queerness and not accepting queerness have come from in mm. cultural communities is something I really like exploring in my work and I really like to want to explore um, a bit more. In terms of where I feel my most abundant and most full, it's in creative spaces where space for people with such a diverse range of stories, be they queer stories, um, stories of people of colour, um, stories of people who have a disability, um, stories where women aren't often given a space. I think where the intersections of that are shown really well and where space is given, um, not simply in the name of tokenism, where there's a really strong and powerful connection, um, where it, say, for example, one thing I would often say is sometimes space can feel like giving people a stool when other people are sitting on couches. And I think making sure those spaces given are really um, about equity and acknowledging um, where oppressions and privileges lie. And that can exist really well in some artistic spaces. And I think it's when I don't have to think about my difference or my sameness as much and I can just exist as I am is where I can usually feel my most abundant and full of self. I'm just, I just wanted to bring up something from Sharika's work, a, a question which is within the work, and hopefully Sharika doesn't mind me quoting <laughs> her work. Um, but it just made me, what you were saying just made me think of this. Um, she writes, how do we find connection, resonance and harmony whilst holding the different senses of who we are? Just wanted to know if you would like to respond to that question from Sharika's work. If I think about it off the top of my head, it's thinking of intersections as like a ribbon weaving its way into itself as opposed to different strings that are trying to link together. So the way things weave together is a lot more organic. And I think by trying to compartmentalise the parts of me, say, for example, being queer, being a woman of colour, identifying with having mental health concerns. I think it's really important to just say, how do these kind of things link? How does my experiences of the um, person who identifies as queer and as a woman of colour contribute to um, mental health concerns? How do those oppressive structures kind of make these things so unified and I think it's by trying to stop separating who I am trying to just kind of digest it as this flowing sense of self yeah I love that and I relate to it as well in terms of just connecting with people not even writing work the connection it always happens in that split second of of like recognition of oh you see me and I see you and 
yeah I think. yeah and I think it's definitely sometimes you know in um, autistic spaces sometimes there's one image or one um, line or even one phrase that comes out to a particular person and really sits with them based on their own experience and I think it's really beautiful how that um, can work and how that can establish a sense of human connection and I think when using an online space that comes out to a lot more people and it helps us remember that we're a community of individuals who feel um, and feel great things and can evoke great things in other people and sometimes not so great things but it's got this great <laughs> sense of connection. Mm. Do you feel like those moments can happen as easily online as they happen in person? I think they they can. They definitely can. I've read, um, particularly when I'm doing, you know, what's called the Dirty 30, which is a, um, a month of poetry writing in April. Sometimes there's a haiku that someone will write when the poem of the day is to write a haiku. There's a really short line that will stick um, with you I think there was I can't remember for the life of me who wrote it but it just stuck with me really well it's um, a really short poem that said um, let's synchronize our watches so we can break up at the same time and <laughs> a really short um, poignant line can really mm. stick really well and you can read that and still feel the intensity um, in that line there. Mm. I guess like one of the benefits also of um sharing your work online is that you know it takes a lot of emotional energy to perform your work in person and by sharing it online it can sort of have its own wings and <laughs> go do its go do its work in the world without you having to personally deliver it each time yeah and I think that is really great um again producing art as you said can take that emotional energy and being able to capture a moment in time when I sometimes watch a video of me performing some of my first poetry I notice how differently I perform it now now that I'm a different person or how I might read it differently being at a different place and I think it's just really nice to have that time capsule of art. Sharika Halaludin's work explores queerness, South Asian dysphoria's archives, questions about the future, home, and what it is to feel womanality in between cultures. To begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I am on stolen lands belonging to the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge that I benefit from the continued processes of violence and dispossession of Australian Indigenous peoples. I pay my respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land always was and always will rightfully be Aboriginal land. Um, so this is a letter that draws on the genre of speculative fiction, a genre that's often whitewashed and reinforces colonial narratives. It's a list of demands and questions and was written last year for a gallery installation born out of love, longing and rage. At the time, I was feeling a lot of discomfort and disappointment and frustration in queer spaces. I'm thinking about the possibility of a queer future, seeking alternatives, what that means and what that looks like. 
What we are told about the future and what we are told about the past is a lie. The future is here, but it is unevenly distributed. The colonization of time, not just of territory, has been instrumental in the process of asserting and enforcing possession over colonized people's lands. Alternative attitudes to time have been and often continue to be marginalized or assimilated. The past is already changing as it is being re-examined, as it is being listened to. Hope can tear through time and space. Is it helpful to think about time as a spiral? I want to interrupt this space. I want to distort this present. Time is not a straight line. We, do, we need to feel like there is a future to move through the present. How do we challenge and redistribute the fucked up organizational powers of colonialism, racism, sexism, ableism, classism, capitalism, how do we find resonance and harmony whilst holding the different senses of who we are? What does a queer future look like? Who is removed? Who gets to be a part of this vision? Who is continually erased from past and present narratives of queer life? Who is forgotten? Whose bodies are excluded? Who is safe? Who is free? Who can afford to think about the future? Who have we lost so we can be here today? Whose histories have we lost and do not know? Who provides the labor we are dependent on, exploiting? Is this something I want to be a part of? Trauma is repetition is repetition. How do we move through our despair together when pain is embedded, rooted and entangled so violently within us? Is it a form of time travel if you experience history and hurt in your bones? Can queer futurity function as a way in which we can envision meaningful and alternative visions of community making and belonging? Can it also consider ways of bringing to force the ostracized and violently effaced non-normative practices, desires, identity expressions and subjectivities? Queer futurity can be a means in which we bring together the complex intersections of mixed identities practices, oppressions, survival. Queer, for me, offers the political potential of intruding and shattering dominant modes of understanding. But queerness is not inherently more radical, but can also violently collude with whiteness, capitalism and colonialism. Queerness can be manipulated to appease white colonial guilt. The idea of queerness can be used to erase many complicated ways of understanding yourself. Queer futurity is also about dismantling of power structures and the redistribution of infrastructure and resources. We need to consider queerness outside of the widest of white spaces. We need to consider each other. Working towards a queer future takes real emotional taxing labor, not abstract theorizing and empty rhetoric. There is a lot to reconsider in activism, ethics, and community. How do we rethink, reimagine, and reorient work, and how we identify with each other? How do we form meaningful connection also as a means to resist commodification? How do we foster social relations across generations and communities based on interdependence, resilience, vulnerability, and solidarity? My point here is to consciously and continually seek better ways of being, 
and seek multiple ways of resisting. I want to believe that futures can be caring, hopeful, thoughtful, freeing, continuous. Holding space to engage the world without attempting to know it fully, creating possibility. My point here is to try and do better, to be more kind. When we can't hold on to certainty, we can only hold on to each other. Thanks for reading that, Shurika. Um, can you tell me what the piece was created for? It was for a gallery installation in Sydney, which I'd never participated in before. So what I read out was actually just vinyl lettering um, on two opposing walls, like a metre long. And the space was commissioned to be a response to the plebiscite, but my friends just got a whole bunch of queer artists to do whatever they want. Um, But I felt really uncomfortable with most of the process and just platforming a really violent and problematic conversation. Um, And I often feel that gallery spaces, especially in Sydney, are not hospitable or conducive to any nuanced discussion, um, at least in that setting, about queer politics. Formal spaces where the creative arts, really in general, are showcased. Do you think that they're usually receptive to ideas of queerness and resistance and what a like future and present feels like for queer people? Most mainstream institutions need to think about profit and maybe that sounds cynical, but I feel really wary that like my queer politics can't be in line with often violent and corrupt organizations. That's not to say that institutional power isn't real, but I don't always think they have the interests of vulnerable and marginalized people at the forefront. I think they're often invested in tokenism and need to have like their one queer act or like their one Muslim or the one person of color so they can get a grant or so they can save face. But I think for the most part, I don't find a lot of solace in being or sharing myself in very rigid institutions like a gallery space um, like that. I often find community and solace and care in alternative spaces. Have you done something similar to this in in another place that felt more aligned with how you want to showcase your work? I think I find, or at least like over the last few years, have found those alternative spaces in online spaces, um, whilst being aware that sites like on social media are corporations. I think um, communities of colour, queer people of colour, we find alcoves where we're able to share ourselves with abundance and with relative safety and to be acknowledged and validated or to learn vocabulary for our feelings or identities and confusions and also having a really strong and supportive friendship group which may not um, be a space where I always share my work but it's spaces where I'm able to cultivate myself and ideas and fuck up and be held accountable and be loved. I really like that you mentioned language because it's so integral to ideas of queer resistance and activism. 
And it's also really important to the idea of deconstructing things. But in general, like language is such an institution in itself. What are your ideas when it comes to how we deconstruct institutions of power? How does that relate to the idea that we actually might need to create something new in order to exist in queer form? Language is very conflicting for me. I think learning about feminist discourse as a teenager online, I was doing that because I couldn't have these conversations at home where English was a third or fourth language. Um, Being able to access a tertiary education was a privilege for a lot of different reasons, but it allowed me to put together a lot of words like queerness, like intersectionality, or even understand what it is to be of a diaspora. But at the same time, knowing that that language is isolating and can often erase the cultural complexities of being someone like myself, a immigrant, Muslim-raised person of colour, and often these big clunky words and not words that I can talk about myself to my family or people that I care about. But I don't think we can dispel <laughs> dispel them entirely and erase the work of often Black women and people of colour, um, queer trans people of colour who are doing the emotional and academic labour to carve space for themselves in rigid and hostile institutions. Um, So I don't know if we need new languages or practices, but maybe the ability to understand how the past and present needs to be re-examined when we picture ourselves in the future. Kind of like what I was getting to my piece, like who is constantly forgotten or erased or who are we trying to assimilate into a white colonial logic of queerness or coming out or any kind of politic? Um, How do we ensure that we're creating infinite space for everyone to articulate themselves in the way that's most empowering for them? Do you ever feel as though some of your ideas, especially around identity, conflict with the frameworks you've been given? to understand yourself? I don't think I've ever reconciled having access to those institutions and how it's informed myself or sense of self. I feel aware that I'm able to utilise or appropriate or take advantage of having access to a really prestigious tertiary education but it was a very hostile place. And I think one of the most important things I learned from my time in tertiary education was the process of unlearning, unlearning white narratives and colonial logic and very narrow ideas of progress and culture and It felt like a constant uphill battle to insert myself into these spaces, whether it was my opinion or trying to write about having a complicated cultural identity. Um, 
but I think that tension fuels a lot of my work and I like to I really like dissonance in my work whether I'm writing or making music I like taking big ideas and often isolating um, academic jargon and just turning it into nonsense and then trying to prioritize vocabularies and conversations about compassion and love and conversations that I have with my mom or cousins or with my friends that are more fruitful and give me more life than words on a white piece of paper in a hollow institution that doesn't care about marginalised people. I don't think I'll ever reconcile it, but more and more I'm just more interested in compassion and care and meaningful interactions with people, whether that's within an academic institution or outside of it. But I really think that these institutions need to be dismantled and decolonized and the constant privileging of queer conversations just through a white colonial lens erases like the very rich tapestry of all the culture and histories and archives of queer people of colour. The Emerging Writers Festival brings you the Digital Writers Festival again in 2018. And you can find the full program live online now. Check it out at digitalwritersfestival.com and join us to listen, learn and play right here in hyperspace from the 30th of October until the 3rd of November and beyond. Our theme music is the magical Huntleys on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands this podcast reaches. <laughs>